0: For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Psalm 118 this morning, Psalm 118, this summer um, we've been doing this study of just a few of the Psalms of Lament, Um, and I've already defined lament uh, as we've walked through this kind of series here. Uh, incidentally, so, um, uh, Taylor's will be with us next week, and Nick will be preaching, and then we will get back into John, the book of John, The fo- Lord willing, the following week. We'll pick it up in John chapter 6, right in verse 1. It's where we left off a couple of months ago now. Um, but I've repeatedly kind of defined a lament as praising God in the dark. And as we worked our way through a few of these specific psalms, we've, honestly, we've spent most of our time in the dark, right? The praising of God that happens while we're in the dark. But today with this psalm, with Psalm 118, we're really going to focus on the praising of God as opposed to spend much time talking about the, uh, the lament of, uh, of the dark itself. And so as we began this study... We began walking through this, these psalms. I said that we needed to develop uh, what theologians call a, a theology of the cross. That means we need to, we need to build our understanding of God, our, our theology in light of God's own revelation of himself in Christ on the cross. And this is, in fact, uh, what Paul argued in 1 Corinthians when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing uh, among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, as we said, if the, if the basis for our understanding of God is Christ and Him crucified, then any notion of living your best life now, any notion of prosperity theology or God wants me to be happy, that goes out the window as the rubbish that it truly is. Instead, in our times of trial, in our times of testing, and and even in our tribulation, we can can turn to the God of the cross to find our ever-present help and our our anchor for our hope. And and I would add to that the, the cornerstone of our faith. And it is this backdrop with the cross that we may turn to our God in our day of trouble. And as we do so, as we lament, as we cry out to Him, we must find our words of lament with the psalmists. Because it is the psalms that we find the the right, the good, and the proper words to express our emotions to God. Because all of the psalms are um, prayers and hymns that God chose to teach us how to express ourselves to Him in worship. Have you thought about that? God chose this. God chose the Psalms to teach us how to express ourselves to him in worship. I said this when we began this series back when we were looking at Psalm 6. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the Psalms the word of God and the prayers of men. And from the Psalms, uh, we lament specifically. These Psalms of lament. We learn that we can cry out to God for... His presence, we can long for His presence as our, as our loving Creator, as our Redeemer, as our Sanctifier, and we can be confident that when no one else is listening, God is. When no one else is listening, God is. I don't know if you've ever caught this, if you've ever kind of thought through it, it this way, but we consider the Psalms both songs and prayers, they are songs and prayers. And since the Psalms are the, the hymnal of God's people, our own songs, others that we have chosen, like we just sang, um, others that we have written for these cor- corporate worship times specifically, they need to be appropriate prayers. Uh, and I've been stressing that what a lament is, a praising God in the dark. I, I love that description praising God in the dark, when we can't see any light. I may have also mentioned this before, that of the Psalms, about a third of them are laments. And so it's important that we understand them, that we understand how to cry out to God in our distress. But Psalm 118 is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than the others that we've looked at, the other Psalms of Lament. There are clearly elements of lament in here, and we will get at that in a moment, but this psalm is much more joyful than sorrowful. I said that some of the psalms are jazz, some of the psalms are rock and roll, and some of them are the blues. This one is much more joyful than the blues. In fact, this psalm is a psalm that's sung really on the other side of the darkness, when God has delivered, when he has made his light to shine upon us, so Let's read this, Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray one more time. Lord, write these things in our hearts. Remind us of this truth. That we may give thanks to the Lord. For you are good. For your steadfast love endures forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is, um, this is another psalm that we don't, know, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know under what circumstances it was written. Some have said that maybe, maybe King David wrote this after being chased by King Saul. Um, maybe later by the, when he was chased by the Philistines, but we don't know. Others have said that maybe it was written during the return of the exile, specifically during the time of, of Ezra when the temple in Jerusalem was being rebuilt. And I, I tend to lean that way, but again, we're just not sure, and, and I'm not sure that it matters all that much. But what we do know and what does matter is that there is very similar language in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 uh, to 13, we read this, so Ezra 3.10 says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, this is the, this is the second temple after Solomon's temple had been destroyed and the people were hauled off into captivity for 70 years and, and they're beginning to rebuild the city and the nation and, and the temple specifically. And so Ezra 3.10 again says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And, And here's what they sang. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was being laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout, Ezra says, from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And that was worship. They were emotionally crying out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And some were proclaiming that in tears, and some with big smiles on their faces, and joy. Psalm 118 is a psalm of hope. It's a psalm of victory after defeat. It's a psalm of rejoicing in salvation. It's a psalm of thankfulness and and blessing the name of the Lord. And so as we consider these things, as we cry out to God, God in, the, in the darkness of our own private suffering, we can read and we can sing and we can, we can pray Psalm 118 as a lament filled with hope. And above all, this psalm is a call to worship. This is a call to worship. So every Sunday, as we just did earlier, uh, as we begin our worship services, the, the first thing that I say is what I call an apostolic greeting. It just is one of the greetings of the the apostles. Uh, It's taken right out of one of the epistles. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What better greeting do we need than that? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost every New Testament epistle written to a church especially has something to that effect in the introduction safe to assume that, that grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is true for us as well. safe to assume that we need to be reminded of those things, grace and peace. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in the 1900s, way back in the 1900s, in England, London. And he taught, he said this, he said, if the church were the minister's home and the people his guests... And it would be permissible to say, Good morning, friends. Nice to see you. How good of you to come. But he regarded that whole approach as wrong. He said, It's not our service. The people don't come here to see us or please us. They and we are, are here to worship God and to meet God. A minister in a church is not like a man inviting people into his home. He's, he's not in charge here. He's just a servant himself. Yet a greeting, grace and peace, it isn't inappropriate. Because it focuses our attention on the Lord, on the object of our worship. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then typically I read a a call to worship, an actual call to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. I'm calling you to do that. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. I don't say those things just to get you to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> I say those things to focus our hearts, yours and mine, on what we're doing here. Because as Christians, we have received grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This entire psalm is, is that kind of call to worship. It's a call that has, has four practical instructions for us, not, not just as we are worship gathered together as the assembly of the saints, like this morning, but also as we present, as Romans would tell us, as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In, in other words, as we live lives of worship. So four practical instructions this morning. And the first is this. Give thanks to the Lord at all times. Pretty straightforward and practical. Give thanks to the Lord at all times. It's verses 1 through 4. Let me read those again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. So as this psalmist opens his emotions just gush out of his pen as he writes these things. Immediately, immediately, right from the beginning, he celebrates God's goodness. He celebrates his steadfast love and the wideness of God's mercy. Rich Mullins, in his song, The Love of God, he sang this. He said, there's a wideness in God's mercy I cannot find in my own. And he keeps his fire burning to melt this heart of stone, keeps me aching with a yearning, keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. And I just want to point out, because I know this will bother a couple of you, reckless in the reckless raging fury, reckless there is spelt with a W. So it's it's not reckless or careless. God's Furious love is not careless, but it is reckless in that it will not cause you to be destroyed. The reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. Now, you may not see the word mercy there in, the first, uh, in those verses, those first four verses, uh, although you might, depending on what version of the Bible you use. Um, because there's no English word here for steadfast love, there's no English word that really captures the meaning of the Hebrew that this is originally written in. That steadfast love is the, word, the Hebrew word chesed, H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Hesed. This is the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His chesed. Endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love and mercy endures forever. It's not sufficient even for the psalmist to just have a private moment of worship. He has to call us to worship with him. Oh, you give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let all Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. He is compelled to call others to join in with him. And as we, as we modern Christians, as we assemble each Lord's Day, we are compelled by the steadfast love of God to join in worship. In Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 40. We read this, as as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, "I I tell you, if these were silent the very stones would cry out. See, this, this call to worship, it's not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion for us. It's a compelling call. We are called to give thanks to our God. We're called to give thanks for His goodness. This, oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. It, it's not merely that He does good. Have you ever thought about this? He does do good, but this isn't really what this is talking about. See, we might be thanked for doing good some good deed. But God is good. It is his it is his essence and his character. So we tell our kids to to be good. But really what we mean is behave. Do good things, don't do bad things. But God is good. He needs to be praised whether we're able to see the good that he does or not. Because he is the very, he's the very definition of things that are good. He's good beyond measure. We know that good people do bad things. Bad people can do good things. And when we see these things, it should stir us to give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His chesed is lasts forever. Then in verses 2 to 4, the psalmist gives three categories, or really three people groups, who are to proclaim his steadfast love. And he begins with Israel in verse 2. This is God's covenant people, those who specifically have been beneficiaries of God's covenant love. Those who have seen God's faithfulness firsthand. Those who have, have God's faithfulness as a part of their whole lives, all of their festivals, their feasts. Everything is about God's faithfulness, His deliverance. They have experienced His loving kindness, e- even during their stubborn rebellion. And then He says this phrase that He repeats several times in this psalm His steadfast love endures forever. This is like their own national motto. I grew up in the state of New Hampshire. Live free or die. Taxes are really high up there now. (laughs) But this is like their national motto. His steadfast love endures forever. His motto doesn't change. Their motto here, his steadfast love endures forever, that can't change. This is a personal hymn for them. And throughout their history, they've been called to sing this, to proclaim this. And if Israel won't sing this, if Israel can't see this, who can? Who will sing this if Israel won't sing this? Secondly, verse 3. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. The sons of Aaron are the priests. These are those who were especially set apart to come nearest to God, to, for example, enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And it's only because of God's mercy, only because of God's steadfast love, His loving kindness, that they're able to live in the presence of a holy God. And if the house of Aaron, if they won't sing this, who will? But then he goes on. And basically, if there's anyone else, if there are even even Gentiles, if there are even Gentiles, verse 4, let those who fear the Lord say His steadfast love endures forever. Beyond anything else, this is a call for unity in proclaiming this truth. A truly God-fearing person will be looking at God's goodness, His mercy, His loving kindness, and they will proclaim His steadfast love endures forever. And so as New Testament Christians... We have been brought into God's covenant community, spiritual Israel. We have been made a royal priesthood, Peter tells us. And so if you fear the Lord, proclaim His steadfast love endures forever. And I want you to know that this is not a one-time event Psalm 118 was not a a once and done. This is a special service or something like that. This was a a constant life of worship. We are called here to give thanks to the Lord at all times, even even in our times of distress. This is the second practical instruction. Trust in the Lord, even in your distress. Trust in the Lord, even in your distress. It's verses 5 through 14 pick it up in five. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And so with the the call to worship as the foundation... Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. With this as the foundation, he then speaks in terms that really we can all identify with. And he does so while recounting God's work of salvation in his own life. Now again, we don't, we don't know who wrote this or even what the cause of his distress was. Not specifically. Yet I think that, I think that most of us can relate to this, at least in a general sense. Um, see, he was in distress... And certain people actually hated him, he says. This is not, he wasn't just having a bad day, right? People hated him. He was in distress. In fact, the people of Israel, as a, as a group, they so identified with this psalmist, with this psalm, that they could sing this anthem as they lay the corner, the literal cornerstone of the temple in, in Ezra chapter 3. They could identify here with verses 10 and 11 because they had experienced this firsthand. Again, verse 10, all nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They had been surrounded. They had been hauled off into captivity. And during the time of Ezra, when they were singing this psalm, they were laying the foundation of the literal temple. They were singing these praises. And even we can identify with this, I think, on some level. Whether the nations have surrounded us or it just feels that way. The psalm here, this psalm assures us that God is listening. It assures us that God is trustworthy. Look carefully at verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. These verses are meant to reassure us and to comfort us. Especially verses 6 and 7. They they draw on our knowledge of who God is. They draw on his nature and his character as our protector and our helper. See, the emphasis in this psalm, as I said, it's, it's not on the dark. It's not on the distress that he's going through. That is the case in many of the other psalms of lament. Think of Psalm 51 that we looked at. But here, the emphasis is on the one who answers our prayers and sets us free. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews, he quotes this psalm as part of his conclusion. Part of his conclusion to, if Hebrews is a sermon, he gets to chapter 13 and he says, "...and in conclusion..." And then he gives some rapid-fire exhortations. Just listen to... It. I'm going to read Psalm 13, verses 1 through 6. He, remember, these are rapid-fire exhortations, so it commands. He says, "...let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body." let marriage be held in honor among all let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous keep your life free from the love of money be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me in other words we can actively trust in God we can even As Hebrews would tell us, we can even follow his commands. We can even live holy lives, even in the midst of our distress, because the Lord is on our side. He is our helper. And one day, he says, you will look on your accuser with triumph. And in reality, this idea at the end of verse 7, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. This idea is a picture of what David said in Psalm 110. And then, and then Peter quoted in Acts 2, verses 34 to 35. So I want to read what Peter quoted. So Peter quotes Psalm 110. Just see if you can follow this. For David, Peter says, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter adds this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The one that God said to the Lord, Father, said to the Lord, the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter says, This is God who made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus shall look in triumph. He shall have his enemies as his footstool. He shall look in triumph on those who hate him. Verse 7. And when the house of Israel heard this, that the father said to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When the house of Israel heard this, Peter said to them, this is Acts 2, 37 to 39. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's about Jesus? That we put on the cross? What should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Trust in the Lord in your distress This is exactly what verses 8 and 9 says. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter calls the house of Israel to do in Acts chapter 2, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ in your distress, then you can look at verses 10 to 12 and you can see the victory. We can see the victory that we can have because God has made Jesus' enemies his footstool. Verse 10, all the nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, on the one hand, we have to remember that that probably the psalmist means these things literally. Literally. Well, not the bees part, but he means these things literally, that his enemies had surrounded him on every side. He, he'd done this in battle, in other words. That's why I read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 and Second Timothy chapter 2, because our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so we must take up the whole armor of God. See, this is a spiritual battle. And God has, as Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Victory in Jesus. Look at verses 10 to 12 again with this in mind. Think of the spiritual forces of evil. Instead of all nations, the spiritual forces of evil surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Sin surrounded me like bees, went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. But don't separate verses 13 and 14 from this. This is where this is incredibly important for us to see. Verse 13 I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. See, in 10, 11, and 12, he may say, I cut them off. I cut them off. I cut them off. But it is the Lord who is his strength, his song, and his salvation. His trust is firmly in the Lord in his distress. As the spiritual forces of evil surround us, and as verse 11 says, uh, verse 12, No, 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. As our sin surrounds us and pushes us hard so that we're falling, the Lord helped me. The Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This really leads us directly to the third practical instruction here, which is to glorify God in your salvation. Glorify God in your salvation. Verse 15. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of righteousness. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And by salvation here, we can mean a couple of things. Uh, Either our salvation from being dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Or it can mean our salvation from the distress of our spiritual battle. Either is appropriate for the people of Israel, it probably was literal, a literal salvation, a salvation from the, Egyptian, the pursuing Egyptian armies, a salvation from the, the captivity in Babylon. If it was David, a salvation from Saul accusing him and pursuing him, a salvation in battle. For us, it's a little bit different and yet very much real. And so this can mean our salvation from being dead in our trespasses and sins, and it can also mean our salvation from a distress in our spiritual battle. Either way is appropriate. And we really don't get the second without the first. Uh, you won't have deliverance from your spiritual battles without having deliverance from your sins. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-10 to 10 kind of gets at both of these when we read this. Paul writes to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. As preached in my gospel, for I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. One of the reasons we preach Christ and Him crucified. One of the reasons we preach the gospel over and over and over again, even to those who have already heard, even to those who have already believed, is because we, all of us, myself included, we need constant reminders of just how gracious God is. We need to be reminded of this constantly. So, for example, in Psalm 107, just the first couple of verses, another call to worship Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever does that sound familiar verse 2 says let the redeemed of the Lord say so he who has redeemed from trouble it's the same thing these calls to worship are all over scripture these are so important for us because we get busy with life and we neglect these things we forget about these things I sat on our front porch last night Forgetting these things. I put the rest of the sermon together yesterday. Usually I try to have it done on Friday and it didn't work this week. So yesterday I put the rest of the sermon together. Went home, mowed the lawn, got rained on, stopped mowing. Sat on the front porch, forgetting this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. I need to be reminded of these things. Constantly. This is the caution of Hebrews chapter 2. First couple verses of Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? All of this, these, these calls to worship, these calls to remember, these warnings, all of this is to, is to foster glad songs of salvation like verse 15 talks about. All of this is to proclaim God's mighty right hand, which just means his, his power, his might, his salvation, his deliverance. This psalmist here, he knows that his life has been spared. That's what he says in verse 17. And so he will preach salvation. He will preach the salvation and the glory of the Lord. And this should be us. This is what Peter, uh, Paul rather says to the Colossians. He says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He said that and then a little bit later he said this. Him we proclaim... Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. And, and just look at the progression from verses eighteen to twenty-one. Picture the exiles living in a foreign country because they have been—they have not followed God's commands. They've been hauled off into captivity but they've found repentance. And God had promised to ancient Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, He said this, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So picture this. Verse 18 looks to me. Like, he, like this is the people of Israel realizing God's discipline but remembering God's promises. Verse 18, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And so in verse 19, God begins to gather them again as he said in Deuteronomy that he would. And they return to his house to worship. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. In verse 20 they're standing there right at the gate they're contemplating the truth of this verse this is the gate of the lord the righteous shall enter through it then you get to verse 21 this is when these returning exiles they walk into the courtyard of the house of god they realize that it was god that opened the gate of righteousness We read this. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Except, to mix together a couple of stories, when it comes to us approaching God's gate of righteousness, remember what Jesus said about the prodigal son? It's not just that the gate was open. He said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is why we glorify God in our salvation. Because in his saving us from our distress, he has heard our prayers and he's answered them. He is your salvation and so we praise him in all things. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. He's called us into His house to worship Him. And He's opened the gate. And He's run down out there and grabbed us. This really is the fourth practical instruction. Praise God in all things. Praise God in all things. Let's pick it up in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected... It's become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up on the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, keep this illustration, and it's just an illustration. But keep this illustration of the returning exiles in mind, because he's still talking about worship here. It looks like these are just kind of simple, pithy statements that that are almost unrelated to one another. Each verse almost seems unrelated at times, and maybe that's because we're familiar with so many of of them. But he's still talking about worship. Worship. He's still talking about passing through the gate of righteousness, the Father's house. He's still talking about entering into the temple. And and now that he's in the temple, he's looking around and he's seeing all that God has done. He's seeing the glory of his splendor and his majesty. And it is marvelous in his eyes, verse 23, especially this cornerstone. Now, to be honest... When you read the commentaries on verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Nobody's really sure why that's there. Nobody's really sure what he's talking about. What builders rejected it? What what is he talking about? Why is this here? But we know. We know because he's not really talking about the temple. We know because he's not really talking about a literal stone on the ground. We know that he's talking about righteousness and salvation. We know that the New Testament is very specific as to the cornerstone of righteousness and salvation. Jesus says on multiple occasions that this verse is about him. And so do the apostles. Let me read two such passages. Acts chapter 4, verses 10, 11, and 12. Peter is preaching before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish court, Peter and John. And then Paul tells the church in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 to 22, Paul says this, For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the refuge. This is the shelter. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord And to trust in princes. Christ is building his church. That's us, that's believers. He is building us into a holy temple, Paul says in Ephesians. The church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so when we read the rest of this psalm, we read it as saved church members, worshiping God in his house, worshiping God as part of his temple. We read this as those on whom he has shined his light, verse 27 says. The light of the world. And we bring a sacrifice of praise. That's what he means when he says, bind the festal sacrifice with with cords up on the horns of the altar. We bring a sacrifice of praise. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And he ends with the same, same note that he began on. Verses 28 and 29 are almost identical to the first couple of verses. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. This psalm is a loop. This psalm is a loop. It goes over and over and over again. We proclaim these things every single week over and over. This is the day again, that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And when you wake up tomorrow, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Can you say that on a Wednesday? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, hey. let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. That's what you need to take with you today. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Pray with me. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. And so we give thanks to the Lord, for you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Father, write these things on our heart. That this would be the meditation of our hearts, and our minds, and our mouths. That victory comes from you. That you are our strength and our song and our salvation. And that when we are pushed hard so that we are falling, it is you who helped us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.